Hi, my name is Raina Dufour. And I'm Veronica Salzler. And you're listening to Achieve Great Things. In today's episode, we sat down with Dr. Judy Lubin, sociologist, racial justice advocate, and founder and president of the Center for Urban and Racial Equity. Many clients that we work with and organizations that we talk to are curious about how to improve racial equity in the workplace. It's something that's top of mind for a lot of us, so we brought in Dr. Lubin to talk about it. What are the first steps to improving racial equity in your organization? How do you engage leadership? And how do you overcome common barriers to prioritizing racial equity? Over her career, Dr. Lubin has led high stakes racial and health equity organizational change campaigns and initiatives on behalf of many government agencies and nonprofit organizations. She previously served as health equity strategy consultant for the New Orleans Health Department and director of allies for reaching community health equity. An organizer at heart, Dr. Lubin began her career in Washington, D.C., training women of color advocates across the country as the grassroots advocacy coordinator for the National Minority AIDS Council. She is frequently called upon by media for her expertise on race, politics, health, and social policy, and has been featured in national and local media, including CNN, ABC News, and The Wall Street Journal. In early 2019, we had the pleasure of working with Dr. Lubin and the CURE team. With their wisdom and guidance, we articulated what racial equity means to us at Hathaway and took a deep look at how our own policies, practices, and beliefs helped or hindered that vision. They reviewed our internal systems and structures, interviewed everyone on our staff, walked us through hard but necessary conversations as a team, and gave us tangible next steps to continue that work toward a more equitable workplace. To us, a racially equitable workplace looks like one where we actively recognize, value, and incorporate the perspectives of minoritized peoples. It means creating a space for our employees and partners to fearlessly speak truth, authentically express themselves, and enjoy meaningful professional growth. It means celebrating and defending difference. We're working to hold ourselves accountable to this vision every day, and working with CURE was such an instrumental first step. Today, we're talking to Judy about what racial equity looks like in the workplace, how organizations can prioritize racial equity, and some of what we've learned ourselves through that work with CURE. We hope you enjoy. We're so excited to have you here with us, Judy, on the Achieve Great Things podcast. The work that we did with Cure back in 2019 is so integral to where we are now, and we are extremely grateful for the partnership that we had with you guys. And so many of the changes that we've made, such as creating a code of conduct, salary bans, this new pro bono um, program that we have, and just regularly engaging in these topics of DEI in our workplace really comes from all of the work that we did with you guys. And so you're such an amazing leader, especially in the racial equity space. And we're really excited for you to share your wisdom with all of our audiences today. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Rain. I'm looking forward to our discussion. And so the first question that we have to kick it off is tell us a little bit about yourself and about Cure's work. Sure. So I, uh, I'm a sociologist by, by training, but I also started off my career first uh, in the public health space, doing public education and public communication work, largely um, targeting uh, public uh, campaigns and public health campaigns and information to, to Black communities. So I do have 
some initial background in, in communications, but in that work, you know, really learning about health disparities and health, health inequities, I realized that I, I needed an, uh, another language and uh, deeper analysis of the issues that we were seeing, uh, particularly in black and brown communities as it relates to, to health inequities and decided to, to go back to school and get a PhD in sociology. And so that helped to really hone my uh, analysis on race and class and, and gender issues. Um, and, and since that um, process of, of getting the doctorate and going back into the field and working with organizations that were trying to make an impact on health inequities and other issues that intersect with racial, racial justice, realizing that um, there, is such a, there was such a need for helping to build capacity internally within organizations to be able to do equity work. And so that helped to birth, birth CURE, the Center for Urban and, and Racial Equity. And uh, so we, we work all day, every day, as I like to say, uh, because racial inequities don't stop <laughs> because we're in a pandemic, right? So we are, you know, we consider ourselves um, a part of this broader movement for racial justice and to transform our society and society. And we do that work primarily in partnership with, with organizations, institutions, and uh, socially minded uh, businesses like Hathaway Communications to really do a deep dive in building an analysis and building a practice for us. At the end of the day, it's about the practice of racial yeah. equity. And so we work um, with a number, we've worked with a number of different organizations over the past few years to really help build that internal capacity and um, uh, a knowledge to be able to practice racial equity, not only internally as a workplace, but also in the programs and services that might be directly delivered to black and brown communities. Yeah, and that's so great. And, it, and it's especially needed right now. And um, I'm curious too, you know, you were talking about how racial inequities don't just end because there's a pandemic. And there's been a lot of attention placed on how do we create a more racially just world in the workplace and your work has a really big role in that. And so I'm curious how really addressing racial inequities in the workplace helps to move us towards more racial justice in the whole world. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great, really great question. And so I think about, um, you know, our society, societies are built around people, institutions and, and systems and institutions, including workplaces. Mm -hmm. And so for us to be able to create the communities and the country and the world that we want to see, we actually need to be able to put, put into practice the principles of, of racial equity um, specifically, but equity principles more, more broadly, right? Within our own organizations and, and workplaces where people spend often eight hours or more a day in relationship with, with other people. And we build structures and systems and cultures within our workplaces. And so where else, <laughs> if it's not within our workplaces that you know, we have an opportunity to really put our values into practice and to model what society and what our communities could look like. Oftentimes we find, usually in the early stages when we work with, with groups, we find that uh, they're thinking about racial equity as this external thing, right? Their programs, mm -hmm. their services, direct, the, the things that they deliver directly 
to communities and, and, and aren't necessarily thinking about racial equity internally within the organization. And certainly we have the lens of DEI, right? That most workplaces have been using as sort of the, the frame to do this work. But for us, you know, racial equity is something, something different, right? That often means uh, a lot more challenging work than, than diversity and inclusion, right? Because when we're doing racial equity work, like we're sometimes <laughs> dismantling structures and, and systems and trying to build up new processes and, and practices that can support equity. And so also, also as part of our work is helping people to understand the difference um, uh, between diversity and inclusion and, and racial equity um, in large part because I think our client partners realize that the diversity and inclusion frame often hasn't gotten them as far as they needed to go, right? That for us, like racial equity, we're doing racial equity work, diversity is the bare minimum, as I like to say is, <laughs> right, yes, we're gonna, we, we want representation, but representation isn't enough, right? And inclusion isn't enough because inclusion says, okay, we're including people or bringing people into something that has already been created. And so how do we move towards something that's more like belonging and where people um, are more fully able to help create the culture, the practice, the work, and the values that we all decide that we're going to agree upon as an organization. And so we've ran into this this um, question when we're working with different clients as well, really trying to untangle what racial equity means to their organization and, you know, figuring out that difference between what does diversity look like to us versus racial equity versus inclusion and really working with them on what does it mean to realize racial equity in the workplace. And so we're really curious for you and Cure, what does racial equity mean to you guys and your organization? What does it look like? Um, how do you know that it's been realized? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great, great question. And, you know, because this work is still fairly, fairly new, you know, what it looks like in different places, I think is still, still evolving. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly we like to think of, of racial equity as uh, not only a goal to close gaps, for example, in, in salary or in promotions or what leadership looks like, um, but that it's a practice, that it's a day-to-day -day practice of, of putting our values uh, into work, of shifting culture, right? Especially shifting from white dominant or what some people call white supremacy culture um, mm -hmm. into a, a culture that um, is more equitable where people feel that they have a voice where uh, there are opportunities to slow the work down, right? <laughs> and so particularly slowing the decision-making processes down. Uh, oftentimes, um, because power is at the center of racial equity work is, we're often looking at how power is showing up across a number of different ways, including in, in decision-making who has a voice, right? I think racial equity looks like um, more people across the organization or the workplace feeling that they have a voice and feeling that that they can hold not only themselves, but they can hold each other accountable to racial equity. It, it looks like being comfortable talking about race and racism at work, <laughs> which for the most part, you know, probably up until the past few years, we were told like that was something that we didn't, we didn't talk about, right? Even though race you know, shows up and affects 
how we communicate it affects our decision uh, making processes affects who ends up being in leadership oftentimes. And so race is often, is often if not all, well, let's say race is always there. And so, you know, racial equity means we're comfortable having honest and authentic conversations about race and racism, not just uh, how those dynamics are playing out at work, but in our communities and, and in the country um, at large. Uh, I think racial, racial equity looks like um, people not feeling uncomfortable at work because of their race, because of their, because of their ethnicity. We have a whole assessment process where we tap into a number of these, these things. And, and we think the assessment process is really important, um, even as sort of a beginning part of a racial equity change uh, transformation within a workplace. And we find that it's important because people start to think about the ways in which race and um, issues of equity show up across an entire organization because we're asking about <laughs> communications, we're asking about decision making, we're asking about hiring and retention and advancement. And so uh, we used to hear quite a bit from some clients that, you know, this sounds like this just sounds like good management practices. And we say yes, but if this is coming up as in the context of a racial equity discussion, we need to talk about it in the context of a racial equity discussion. And how do these things relate to us being able to um, achieve this vision for racial equity, achieve this vision where um, black and brown staff feel that they have a voice, where black and brown staff feel that, um, you know, where black and brown staff are not experiencing microaggressions or um, racism within the workplace. And so how are we creating a, a, a place and a culture where everyone is really, really valued? Uh, thank, you. thank you for that. We, um, Rena and I have the pleasure of working with a handful of clients who are wrestling with these same questions. And one of the things that this makes me think of and talking about the, the focus, as you mentioned, on really like external exhibitions of racial equity and grants investment and what does it look like from the outside? Um, knowing how important and necessary it is to have the inside figured out as the fundamentals to be able to show up um, really living that out um, out in the world. And so as I mean, as a strategic communications firm, last summer was a fascinating time for us, of course, um, watching you know all sorts of companies, gosh, like Nike gushers releasing statements about, about their racial equity commitment um, in the midst of the Black Lives Matter protests and of course, reckoning ourselves with how to respond. Um, what organizations or examples really impressed you in the way that they were able to meaningfully and authentically engage in that conversation and why? Oh, you're gonna, huh. <laughs> I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, it's funny that none is coming to mind immediately. I'm sure if I thought about it a bit more, um, it's, it's interesting, right? That oftentimes we do think of the, the, <laughs> the negative examples. Um, and, and certainly there were a lot of those where even though maybe or uh, workplaces or industries, like even banks and financial institutions normal, normally would not have uh, 
put out a statement around racial injustice and police brutality. You know, we're doing that last last summer, and they felt that they needed to as part of the wave and a recognition that um, it was important in, in, in the moment last year to, to register that um, they were supporting racial equity and recognize the need to, to call out injustice. But I think certainly, um, you know, some of the, the critiques around uh, some of the responses we saw were that some of them didn't even say black people, right? <laughs> in, in their statements, which I think is really important as we're talking about what racial equity is and what racial equity looks like is being explicit and building that um, courage to be explicit and to name um, that there are specific populations that are experiencing specific types of, of harms, right? As a result of, of systemic racism. And so I think some of the better statements were the ones that were really explicit in naming what we were seeing and why um, being really critical and that not just saying we support the movement for, for Black lives, um, because some of those statements didn't even say that, right? Um, and so I think, you know, part of this, part of this work certainly is, is building the capacity to be able to, to name what is, right? When we see uh, oppression showing up, when we see violence happening and being really explicit about who's being harmed, but also like if we're rolling out programs and services, being explicit and being comfortable, being explicit that we're gonna be targeting a set of programs or initiatives to a group or to a community that have ex experienced historical harm or, or present, day, present day harm. Um, and so I think oftentimes um, there is a reluctance to do that. And, and certainly that's the, the part of that is the, the legal framework that has um, emerged post the civil rights movement. But I think one of the things that we're seeing coming out of uh, the movement for black lives over the past few years is the recognition that we, you know, we don't get out of the condition that we are in without being explicit, without targeting uh, policies and programs and initiatives to Black communities um, and to communities of color that have experienced historic marginalization, right? And so that's the difference between equity and, and equality, right? Which is also one of those things that we uh, spend a lot of time with or helping people to, to, to think through, right? That um, treating everyone the same <laughs> doesn't get us to, to equity um, and that we need to be able to, to see you know, inequity and that the way that we um, begin to resolve inequity is through um, targeted, uh, sustained commitments to very specific issues and challenges that um, different communities are experiencing. And would you are there are there risks to the broader racial justice movement in putting out statements that are not necessarily backed up by action, but are just statements for statement's sake? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know that it's necessarily, and I feel like my questions are, my answers have been really long-winded, so please feel free to <laughs> 
email to me or say, oh yeah, you, you know, you, you answered the question like 10 minutes ago. Oh, we're um, learning so much. This is great. <laughs> yeah, truly. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. So I, I, I would say, I would se- I would probably separate, right? Like the broader racial justice movement from statements that are being issued by corporations and organizations that may not necessarily be a part of the movement, right? Because when I think of the movement, I think of it largely as people who are on the ground, grassroots folks, organizers, activists that are um, putting their lives and often their bodies on the lines in order to um, fight for justice. Um, and so that movement you know, will happen, will always happen as long as there are injustices um, separate from whether organizations or corporations recognize these movements as something that they want to um, say that they support um, either through a, a statement or through financial commitments, right? Um, I, I certainly, I think that um, there are initiatives and ways that um, businesses and organizations can be supportive of movements, but movements can and have, I would say, always, certainly have always, for the most part, been created from people on the ground, right? Like that they're grassroots and that they can exist, um, whether or not uh, corporations are 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 signing on and saying that or legitimizing them, right? Um, and, and some would argue, right, like that if you look at the history of movements, particularly more radical movements, is that when when you start to see the statements <laughs> that that could be a sign of the movement potentially, or at least a vulnerability of the move of movements, right? That now corporations are saying, yeah, we're 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 part, we want to be part of this. Um, and so, so yeah, so that, you know, I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement started at least in 2014, 2013, if not before 2012, uh, if we go back to the um, the verdict, uh, the uh, George Zimmerman verdict. And so it was something that was continuing to, to build up that we didn't see uh, businesses and, and uh, large nonprofits um, necessarily come out in support of, um, not in the way that we saw last year, but that didn't stop the movement from happening because police brutality and, and violence was continuing. And so that um, is, is, is what sustains the movement is that people are committed to changing their material realities, especially when you know, your, your very survival is, is, is being threatened on a daily basis. Um, and so I think certainly organizations and, and institutions have a, a, a role to play, um, but well, that has to largely be um, by listening and following what people on the ground are saying, people who are actually part of the movements who are doing the grassroots organizing um, and the activism versus trying to get ahead of the movement um, or not really, tr- not really willing to embrace the movement fully. Right, and so I think that's where um, the tensions will always be 
because <laughs> usually when we're talking about movements that are emerging from people who are oppressed, um, those, those demands out of those movements are oftentimes going to be counter to what we consider as mainstream and the things that we might think are what we're able to do within a corporation or within an institution. Yeah, I, I so appreciate that. Thank you. So thinking about some of our own experiences and wrestling with these, these tough conversations and challenges, um, I mean, have had a way we have learned and unlearned a lot about ourselves and our company through this work with you and that has continued on. Um, and as I was reflecting on this, it's like having always looked at yourself through a warped mirror and then suddenly someone like cleans it or replaces the mirror and you're seeing yourself in all of your faults and foibles and it's deeply vulnerable and it's scary. Um, and so how, how do we as, um, you know, and this is me speaking as a, a white woman, how do we get beyond the sheer terror of being vulnerable? in doing this hard ongoing work to create a more racially equitable workplace? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we just have to, I think for me at the end of the day is that believing that change is possible and that something good and better is on the other side, which when you're going through the process, you may not always feel that way. And I, I certainly remember some conversations with folks that had a way when, <laughs> when we shared the findings of our assessment or even some of the, the, the trainings and dialogues that we had there, right? Like they weren't easy conversations to have and it feels disruptive and this process is disruptive, right? And, and we like to think it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's positive disruption, but when you're going through it, especially at the beginning, it, it, feels, it feels shaky and a lot of emotions are opened up uh, at work where oftentimes um, there isn't space for those types of discussions and honest and raw conversations to, to happen. Or that, you know, we, if we have conversations about race, it's often distance, right? It might, it might be something in the community or um, something that happened in another city, but now like we have to turn the mirror on ourselves and, and apply these same <laughs> concepts and analysis to like how we operate, to how we speak to each other, to how decisions get made. So it's, it's, it, it can be a bumpy ride. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, you know, we try to anticipate that the more that we have done some of these processes with client partners that, you know, we take time, for example, we learn, right, <laughs> you should, we have to have a one-on-one -on -one with the, the CEO or the, the president as part of the beginning of that process, because we learned how much, I mean, yes, it's obvious, right, that leadership plays a big part in, 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 in uh, organizational change, but that uh, the leadership um, can be a, a major hindrance um, from being able to have real honest conversations and equitable, inclusive conversations. And so being able to maybe reset power dynamics as we're starting off a racial equity transformation process in the beginning, it's important to have those conversations with key leaders, but particularly we found with, with white leaders 
um, to have those conversations, things that we've learned, um, how white leaders often show up to the work that we, we have these one-on-one -on -one conversations at the beginning um, to be able to preempt some of the dynamics that can then make people not trust the process as it unfolds. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things, it's, it's funny, one of the things that you all shared that comes up all the time in our office is, um, and continues to surprise us, is this white dominant culture values. You referenced this earlier um, in the work of Dr. Timo Kuhn, and it was very unsettling um, as a team to learn how much, I think in particular, perfectionism and a sense of urgency are just embedded in the way that we work and the way that we make decisions and how those values can complicate real progress. And so I would love to hear, I mean, what are those attitudes or behaviors that you think are so necessary to either have or upend <laughs> to really make this sort of thing stick and become embedded in the way that organizations work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. And I know you all struggled with this one because you, you're a communications firm. <laughs> and so part of doing communications work is almost like you're practicing perfectionism, right? Like you're dotting the I, crossing the T, and you're doing it twice and three times. And, you know, and so I, I, I get that, right? And as somebody who's been in the policy space, right? Right. Making sure that we're um, anticipating uh, questions that we're going to get, critiques, and, and eliminating those things that we think could be as a distraction from the message that we want to, to communicate. And so we find that everyone can relate, right, to the, the sense of urgency. And because there is a lot of urgent work that needs to be, be happening at the same time we don't dismantle inequity and injustice overnight or even in three months or six months or <laughs> or a year. Um, and so I think even, even in the context of those conversations about the perfectionism and the sense of urgency and the, the, the sense that we need to do more and we need to do it quicker, as people think about those concepts through a racial equity lens, I, I think it opens up the space for people to consider how we can slow down. I think oftentimes we feel that we have to keep going and doing things as quickly as possible because in part that's that's our practice, right? Or that's our culture. Um, and so the more I think people have those conversations and being able to chat like, okay, what's what's happening here? Can we slow this down? Who else do we need to, to bring into, into discussion or into dialogue so that we have everyone who should be at the table to help inform a, a decision or for people to really feel like this was an inclusive process. Um, and so for us, we, you know, we like to say, you know, racial equity is, you know, it's not just an outcome, but it's a process and a practice that we want what we're doing to feel equitable because we took the time to really make it a process that supports equity, right? For, for equity to happen, right? We actually have to practice equity. Um, and so I think uh, that is a big, oftentimes big, big uh, challenge for folks, but also a recognition that almost, I think almost immediately, at least as we go into like trainings around institutional structural racism is that 
people realize how much they, uh, probably how much more they could be doing, but in a more deeper or intentional way, if there was more spaciousness around the work, if there were more consultative types of practices, either internally or with the communities that are that are being served. Um, I think also uh, another key sort of uh, important part of this work is, is for people to be um, always constantly evaluating, constantly evaluating the things that we put into, into practice to support racial equity and recognizing that we're all learning. We're all learning. And so there's times we, we were literally testing something, <laughs> right? We may not have tried this before. We're, we're testing it. Let's see how this goes for three months, for six months. Or if we see right away, this isn't working, um, you know, that we can be flexible um, and, and reiterate, you know, as we're trying to build racial equity that, um, you know, we don't know that there, there is a racially equitable um, organization. So I think that, that, you know, for the most part, like we're all working off of principles and values and a vision, right, as we're trying to, to build racial equity within our workplaces and within our, within our communities. Um, so I think, you know, flexibility, uh, open-mindedness, a commitment to, to ongoing learning as well, um, you know, we find that uh, folks who have been doing uh, work that they may call racial equity or equity oriented work might be resistant at first <laughs> and then realize like, oh, I actually have a lot, still have a lot to learn. Um, and so I think that's also really important that regardless of how long we've been doing this work, how old we are, how much, how many years we have. <laughs> In, in the workplace or in community that there's always something more to learn. There's always um, ways for us to sharpen our lens and analysis. There are um, ways for us to be in deeper community and solidarity with um, communities experiencing uh, racial, uh, racial injustices. And so I think, um, you know, this work is always asking us to, to listen, to listen more deeply and more um, intently. Um, and so I think that is probably one of the things that we tell <laughs> our clients a lot. Uh, one of the things, going back to the sense of urgency, because this is coming up with one client we're working with now, is balancing this need of, or this urgency that they're hearing from employees internally for change, right? Particularly from black and brown employees and then not, but not rushing <laughs> and putting things in place and not really listening, right? And being able to hold those two, hold that tension that yes, I hear that um, people want to see things change, right? And we want to see the organization, particularly want to see leadership taking the concerns that were shared seriously. Um, but at the same time, as a person in leadership that you don't then run and do, <laughs> put in, what you, in place what you think needs to be put in place, right? As opposed to like doing that in a collaborative process um, so that you don't cause more harm, right? Because oftentimes that's what happens is that 
in the rush to do something that more harm or injury can be um, can be can be caused. And so I think a lot of this is also ties to another thing that we talk about is transparency. Um, is that even if you don't know the answers right now, is to to be vulnerable and to say, <laughs> I don't know. We don't know the answers right now. We're trying to figure them out. Um, we're bringing in outside help, or we've put together this internal committee or working group so that we can come to some solutions and some strategies together in a way that feels right for people in a way that um, honors the demands and the change that needs to happen, but that we're doing this in a way that's gonna support um, more participation, more voices being a part of the decision-making process. Yeah, I mean, this sense of urgency, especially from black and brown um, people who are working at different organizations, one thing that we've wondered about and also we've seen in other organizations is how do you empower lower level employees who are so passionate about racial equity and advancing that in their own workplace and having those conversations with leadership who might not be as passionate about it quite yet? And what advice would you give to people who want to push those policies forward, as well as what advice would you give to leaders and listening to the, those who are trying to push those forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, one, you know, for, for me, like, I, I want to think about how does leadership or the organization create structures so that junior staff, so that Black and Brown staff are able to have channels for them to voice their opinions and to do that in a way um, that isn't going to be, they're going to then receive a ba backlash or retaliation. Um, and so for us, we're always thinking about what are the structures that can be put in place to support those types of things so that it's not just on black and brown staff or on a few people to, to be vocal, right? Because then, then we're placing the burden often on uh, people who may be in junior positions within the organization who um, may be less reluctant to speak because they don't have a lot of power or feel that they don't have much power or position within the organization to be honest, or they get labeled as, as troublemakers. And oftentimes um, it's, it's women, right? It's women of color that are raising these concerns and that get marginalized um, within organizations and workplaces as troublemakers or disruptors. And so as much as we like to encourage the agency of people, right, to own uh, their voice, but that we also as a organization have to create the structures and the processes for those things um, for, for people to be able to, to voice their concerns, for people to ask for change in a way that um, is safe and that they're not putting themselves at risk. So things like working groups are really important um, for all of our, almost all of our change processes, we ask that a working group be created if there isn't one already. And that that working group has a mix of people, um, not by, not just the, a diverse mix of people, not just by race and ethnicity, but position levels, right? That 
the, the CEO or president or executive director is part of that meeting, is part of that working group, and that there's administrative staff and uh, directors and people who represent a cross-section of the organization, part of this working group so that we're modeling um, what equity looks like or beginning to model what equity could look like and for people to be able to have uh, real honest truth-telling conversations um, through a working group, a racial equity working group or um, task force where um, community agreements are developed um, and that there's an expectation that, you know, as the president or the executive director, you're going to hear from people who may normally have not had an opportunity to be to, to speak with you on a day to day basis or to, to say specifically the things that they would like to see to see change. And so I think we, we found that the working groups where, you know, we're beginning to diffuse power across the organization really really helps um, and, and having these conversations across the organization about racial equity, about power dynamics, about um, decision-making processes, um, you know, begins to create more space for people who, who may have not normally, who normally would not have spoken up are now feeling that um, there's space to, to speak up. And then sometimes, you know, more often than not, right? Like it's people who are being harmed that are speaking up regardless of, <laughs> of whether racial equity change process has, has happened. And so I think now where uh, post 2020, I think it's incumbent on, on every organization, every workplace to take that initiative, to start to begin to build those structures and those processes and those channels to, to happen, right? So that it's not something that um, people have to demand um, or feel that they now have the uh, capacity to do because we witnessed, you know, a murder, you know, of a black man on, on the streets of Minneapolis. And so I think one of the things for us coming out of, of, of last year is, 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 is being more proactive um, in this work. I think certainly like the, the groups that we worked with before last year were, probably breathing a little bit more of a sigh of, of, of I won't say relief, but felt maybe more um, able to navigate the demands um, internally as well as externally as a result of uh, the, the police uh, murders that happened last year and, and uh, the, sec the second wave of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I think you know, we were bombarded like so many of our, of our colleagues coming, you know, last summer um, and, and still to a certain extent right now where a lot of organizations are still trying to figure out how to do the work or they tried to do it internally and um, didn't quite um, uh, roll out in a way that felt um, safe for people 
um, or or they realize they just they need some more some more help. And so I think you know now I think is is a good time for people to to when in organizations to be reflective around what we have done so far and what else we need to do to to deepen our work or or what more listening that needs needs to happen before any additional efforts are undertaken. Um, and I'm curious, what one piece of advice would you give to organizations that are starting this journey on incorporating racial equity into their organizations? Never one piece of advice. <laughs> I always feel like that's a hard question. Whenever I say one, I'm like, oh goodness, this is gonna be a hard one. <laughs> There's so much, I mean, there's so much, and we're going through a process now of internal evaluation of what we've learned from working with a number of groups. We're almost, I think at 15 plus groups um, through taking groups, at least 15 plus through like a six to nine month or more process. Um, just, yeah, like I said, there's, there's so much. Leadership is a big part of this. Um, so I think one one piece of advice is for for leaders to be self-reflective in where they are, that it's not enough to say, yes, I think racial equity is important. And yes, I want to we should put together a working group or we should hire a consultant. Um, but because of you know what we said earlier at the beginning of this conversation is the vulnerability that is such a part of this process that I think people in leadership often aren't. Uh, aware of how much <laughs> they are going to be challenged in this work. And so I think that's probably the one, one of the clear consistent things that we see across every group that we've worked with is how much the people in leadership are, and I don't know how much you can prepare, um, but certainly I think uh, uh, racial equity coaching helps um but just the amount of vulnerability that uh and the amount of deep listening that leadership has to be able to do um in this process is critical uh you know when you get the findings of the assessment um, most assessments are not positive as we tell our client partners is and that's a reflection of where we are as a society right that most assessments are not going to feel good when you read those reports. Um, and, and as someone in, in leadership, when you read and you hear the critiques about the organization that you run, that you lead, it can feel personal. Um, and it could feel very disruptive and shaky and emotional. Um, so we think, you know, to the extent that uh, there are opportunities for, for leaders to do their own work alongside the change that's happening in the organization is really, really important. Um, that's one piece of advice. <laughs> I'll stop there. Uh, yes, so, so important. Turns out vulnerability, very important, very hard for most, <laughs> for most things. Um, First, I actually would love to turn it to you, um, but can you tell everyone, how can people contact or learn more about Cure? 
Sure. So you can find us at urbanandracialequity.org or on Twitter at equity underscore center. Beautiful. And yeah, I mean, let, let's turn this the last few minutes into a conversation. Um, we've asked you a lot. Would be curious if you have any questions for us because it's so great to connect after um, several years ago, really starting this process. Yeah. That clear, terrifying mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I would love to hear from you all, like what changes have happened that you can tie directly or indirectly uh, to the work that you did with, with Cure. Um, I think for us, we, we do find that it, 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 you know, it doesn't happen like overnight and we, we don't expect change to happen overnight. I think our client partners are hoping change will happen, happen <laughs> overnight. So I, I just love to hear like how you see the work um, that you all are doing, how you all have been building on the work that we started together. Um, uh, what have, and, and also like, what, what would you say would have been, was probably the toughest moment of the time that we were, <laughs> that we were working together? Yeah, I think, so one of the, one of the early outcomes that came from the conversations and all of the work and learning that we did with you that I think has been some of the most challenging and important has been the code of conduct work. And we spent a, a lot of time as the, our DEI internal team and then working to get feedback um, across the whole organization to put into words what it means to work with each other <laughs> and do that through a racially equitable lens and being able to step back and say, all right, this is what we've, what we've developed and created for our equity statement. And what we say is our vision for what equity and racial equity looks like at Hathaway. And then figuring out how to hold ourselves accountable when that is at risk. And I think that is a, that it's been one of the most important and valuable and challenging things to live out day to day, because it requires those vulnerable conversations to say, Ooh, this thing happened that I don't love, or mm -hmm. I'm uncomfortable about this. And one of the things that we've really built into the code of conduct is, um, is starting those early, starting those conversations early and often. And it, yeah, it requires a commitment to those uncomfortable conversations. Um, but I think that it has added a level of, of rigor to what it looks like day to day. Um, and there's been a lot of um, work I mentioned when we were chatting earlier about so much of the kind of organizational structure that has been informed from so much that we learned about kind of the with lack of clarity in terms of progression path or salaries or roles and responsibilities that when there's not that structure, then the people who lose out on it are the ones without the power. And yes. they are the black and brown employees mm -hmm. who don't know how to work the system or don't have the relationships and they lose out. And it is this like much, much bigger undertaking to say, all right, how do we actually 
do not just how do we do, you know, blind resume review, but how do we totally shift the way that we are building our hiring practice? How do we change our whole, um, I, I mean, we did a whole overhaul of our, um, of our roles and responsibilities. And so actually adding much more structure to what it means to be a junior associate, an associate, a senior associate, so that progression was built on structure and not something that was a little bit more uncertain that left a lot of a lot of black and brown employees behind. And so I think that's been a really important lesson for us. Um, and then we've just gotten to do some fun things like Raina, if you want to speak to the pro bono program that came out of ideas through our, through our just ongoing conversations about this. Yeah. I mean, and even just the implementation of having a DEI committee and having a space like you're talking about with the working group to be open about how we are approaching the code of conduct, how we are approaching certain programming that we do has been really nice because we also have a lot of different levels within our organization within that DEI committee. And so the conversations around the code of conduct and how we approach feedback, how we approach, again, like Veronica was saying, progression paths was different depending on what level you were in and what your needs were and where your needs were, um, there was gaps and how the code of conduct could help fill that. And so just having those discussions was really, really illuminating, but for the more exciting stuff. Um, so we just launched a pro bono program and um, the pro bono program, it ends tomorrow, but we're looking to work with local organizations that are ran by people of color and serve people of color in the DC community. And so again, that came out of these discussions that we had about what else could we be doing and what else do we wanna be doing? And so that program is probably going to launch um, probably mid next month. And so we're really excited about that, as well as really trying to incorporate DEI conversations in our day to day. So it's not just like the DEI committee over here talks about DEI and then the rest of the organization might talk about it every two months at a staff meeting or something, um, but really getting intentional about how we can have uncomfortable conversations and how we can lead those uncomfortable conversations. And so we have a content club where someone is responsible for picking like a piece of content, whether that's a book, an article, a movie um, that relates to something that we wanna discuss and bring it to the table. And everyone's required to join that conversation and really talk about whatever the leader of that conversation um, is bringing up. And so we do that once a month now, we have a Slack channel for all of the things that you know we find are interesting in the news and things that we want to bring to talk about at our workplace and so that has been really nice and really allowing us to have these more open and vulnerable conversations in informal places and so it doesn't feel like you know I'm coming to a DEI meeting and I know what I'm going to be talking about in this meeting yes. but instead really infusing it and in how we think and how we work and what we talk about with each other and stuff and so the work that we did with you is a really big part of where we are today so we're really grateful. Well, that's really good to hear. I, I remember some of the, the early, I think the early seeds of a pro bono, local pro bono program being discussed um, by that first DEI or racial equity committee. So that's really exciting to hear. Um, like it's, it's moving full force. And then of course, all the other changes that you 
that you mentioned, and I, I, I really appreciated Veronica, you mentioning about um, the more structure around progression, which we see across a number of organizations, but especially groups that are growing, um, where there isn't that structure, but as you're growing, the, 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 the lack of structure around progression um, often means that black and brown staff um, suffer from that, not having a clear path for, for advancement within, within the workplace. And so I'm, I'm so happy to hear that uh, there has been a lot of movement in, in that area. Yeah, it's been, I think, like the thinking about the default of white dominant culture that, all right, how do we need to create structures that creates thoughtful pathways that keep us from getting stuck there <laughs> has been really important. Yeah, I was thinking about, right, like, because sometimes the structure can be used to reinforce <laughs> racial inequity, right? And so how are we building structures that are supportive that are flexible, but that also aren't going to reproduce um, inequities. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes the structures exist and sometimes when they don't exist, you default to where we don't actually want to end up. Mm -hmm. And so taking that time to reflect was, was a really, really important part of that process to see how it actually was meaningfully affecting staff's lives. Yeah, so now I'm curious, one of the things that we talked about as well when we were working together was um, how you support or uh, organizations that are working on racial equity and racial justice issues. So it's, it sounds like there's been some, some movement there also. Yeah, well, Raina and I have the great pleasure of working with Lumina Foundation on their racial equity work. Really, I mean, they came to us with this question of what is it, can we create a racial equity framework. <laughs> and so have actually done some really cool research around how organizations, and they work in the higher education space, um, how they as an organization, how grantees in their space understand and communicate about racial equity. And then more generally across the US, what does equity mean to people? What does racial equity mean to people? And how can we help everyone across in this space communicate more um, more in a more toward action um, so that it's it's not just equity for equity's sake it's deeply aligned with and rooted in this very specific vision for the world like you described earlier in this conversation and every organization has some sort of unique take on that and unique role to make that change. And so I know that that process and that learning journey has been really interesting for us to be able to see, all right, how do we actually, how does communication show up in this, right? And it is, it is a reflection of all of these types of internal conversations and commitments and awareness of one's role and impact. And so it's, yeah, it's been a really important contribution to this journey as well. That's great. Yeah, I mean, we we really believe that as you, you build your internal uh, racial equity lens and capacity, um, that 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 translates to the to the work. Um, you know, maybe the, the core work that you do, right, in terms of your programs, your services, 
Um, so yeah, so that's really, that's really exciting to see how both the internal and the external are really aligning. And um, that's often a message that we have for our client partners. I mean, because we, we certainly, you know, we have, you know, our own, you know, goals and objectives around working with, with groups that are focused around housing and urban equity issues and uh, community, equitable community, community change. And, you know, we were maybe to a certain extent surprised when we first started doing this work was how much work needed to happen internally. <laughs> that as much as we would like to focus on, on some of the external work, but that so much internal work um, was needed you know, in terms of building um, the culture and the processes and the practices and even being able, comf being comfortable talking about race and racial equity internally, you know, outside of, you know, inequities that the communities we serve are experiencing that that sort of transformation needed to happen internally to be able to strengthen the, the external work. Yeah, Judy, any final Final words, final thoughts um, or reflections. This is just such a pleasure, such a pleasure to reconnect with you and, and learn from you and grateful to be able to share it. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been, this has been great. We don't always have a, a chance to um, follow up with clients two years later. <laughs> We're in the process now of beginning to do some of that, that follow-up. So it's always exciting to hear um, how, <laughs> what might've felt like a really shaky and uncertain process at the beginning is really, to, really beginning to feel um, steady um, and, and a bit more, more certain and, and having a clear direction of where, where to go. So I'm really, I'm really happy to hear how you all have really internalized um, the conversations and the work that we we started and to really um, listen to the two of you really show like how you can build the capacity internally for the work to keep going, which is what we really think is important is that at some point, if, if you hire a racial equity consultant, right, like that racial equity consultant is not going to be with you, you know, <laughs> after a year or after six months. And so... <laughs> this is going to be on the team to continue to, to do the work and um, put everything into practice. And so it's really um, fulfilling and heartwarming to hear how, how you all are really um, continuing to, to, to put racial equity into, into practice. Thank you so much, Judy, for your time. Um, Raina, it's a pleasure as always to yeah. have these conversations with you too. Yeah, thank you so much. We're extremely grateful and we're really excited.